needlework uh, throughout the centuries has been, I would say, maligned. People follow patterns that they're not innovating their own imagery. But really, that's kind of not fair, right? I mean, embroidery has a very specific social function to show that you really uh, were industrious and you were indoctrinated into whatever your social system was. You know, so there's all these reasons to make peace outside of innovation of image. Hi, this is Libby. And this is Roberta. And this is Art Blog Radio. Today we're speaking with Mary Small in her home studio in North Philadelphia. Mary is an artist and art teacher who uses other people's unfinished needlepoint that she finds on eBay as the raw materials of her art. We have seen her works recently at the ICA, the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Mary is a member of the Grizzly Grizzly Collective, where she curates shows. She has a BFA from University of the Arts and an MFA from Cranbrook Academy. So tell us, I, we know you as our bookkeeper, <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> as well right. as an artist. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between numbers and math and your art? Well, I would say that there's definitely a connection between, um, you know, I started out as an artist working in textiles. I really see a close connection between all systematic thinking and the way that textiles have been uh, developed, you know, throughout the centuries, that there's this relationship between, um, for example, binary thought and uh, the way that weaving works. Can you just break that down for those of us who are rather math-phobic? Yes, yes. What does the binary thinking in textiles mean in weaving? Is that the warp and the woof and the things going back and forth? Right, the idea that a thread in a weaving can be either above or below. There's only two positions, but the way that you combine those positions above and below can be in infinite combinations. And, you know, so looms, you know, a floor loom was the first um, really programmable technology of humankind that we developed. But systematic thinking is, um, inherent in all textiles, um, you know, sort of certainly weaving being, you know, the most obvious one. And also conceptual art as it develops, you know, starting in the 1960s, the idea that that you would have this plan and then you would execute that plan. You um, mean like Saul LeWitt? Like Saul LeWitt, yes. That is the way that textiles has functioned for centuries. So in weaving, if you create a weave draft, it's really just a plan for the way to create a certain kind of fabric, woven fabric. And anybody could execute it. You know, the actual draft of how this thing gets made is, is universally, you know, readable by anyone who understands a loom. So, so do you job out your ideas? <laughs> or or do you sit there stitch by stitch? <laughs> well, I, in, this, in my actual studio practice, I do both. So I make work myself. I use studio assistants also, and I um, hire fabricators sometimes too, yeah. Just that the idea uh, for the work is the prime mover for that work, and that you begin with a system that you've decided is going to guide the work. That's just like accounting, right? Bookkeeping, double entry bookkeeping, that is a system, and if you faithfully follow the system and you're, you know, every detail is um, adhering to the system that you've set up, you at the end get these, get the truth. I mean, that's what accounting is. <laughs> you. So, so is each of your pieces the truth? 
Uh, they're definitely a truth of a certain kind. Yeah, a whimsical truth, right? A truth that's sort of more subjective than, say, the truth that you get at the end of your accounting. But yes. So how how is your work different from my sitting down as a non-professional uh, person and making a needlepoint and following a kit? You're working with kits. Yeah, Tell me about yeah. this. Well. I do believe, you know, certainly not just me, lots of artists work in rule-based systems, you know, sort of like one tenant of conceptual art approach. Yeah. Can you explain some of your rules to us? Because yeah, it's very yeah. curious, people who work in rules, not everybody does. No, certainly not. Um, so one of the projects I have, I buy uh, commercial needlepoint kits, which are sort of like paint-by-number kits. So there's a pre-painted sort of canvas to work on, and it comes with all the yarn that you need to complete the project. And it's usually, you know, it could be anything. Imageries, you know, sort of could be pretty standard, generic pastoral imagery. So, for example, in one of my series, there's a needlepoint kit called Old Mill Farm. So it looks pretty much like what you would expect, <laughs> an old mill on a farm. So, you know, for in that project, which I call, you know, conceptual needlepoint series, I basically just create my own rules for completing that that kit instead of following the rules that come in the kit so that I can make the intended image. I sort the yarn in the kit based on a very simple formal rule, which is usually value, so dark to light. And then I'll complete the kit with another sort of formal rule, like I decide that I'm going to start at the bottom and I'm going to cycle through all of the yarn. So I've got this, um, you know, I create a very minimal sort of um, formal kind of color-based uh, abstract image, but I've really just reformulated all of the colors in that original image in a different way. So can you talk a little bit about um, the sentimentality of the images and what you've done to them and how it's yeah, different? Yeah, I mean, I think that so... Needlework uh, throughout the centuries has been, I would say, maligned for certain parts of it, right? And one of the reasons it's been sort of looked down on is that people follow patterns, that they're not innovating their own imagery. But really, that's kind of not fair, right? I mean, embroidery has a very specific social function. So you wanted to do embroidery to show that you really uh, were industrious and you were indoctrinated into whatever your social system was. It's usually, you know, Christian sort of values of hard work and also to show that you were accomplished and that you could do this kind of fine work. You know, so there's all these reasons to make the piece outside of innovation of image. You know, I think that there's this interesting way that we've decided that certain kinds of work are more artistic than other kinds of work, right? I do think that there's something there that's sort of outside of what we're typically thinking about when we think about like whether an image is good or bad. It's this other thing. Underneath the SPUN project, mm -hmm. which is your Society for the Prevention of... Unfinished Needlepoint. Yes. yes. 
there's some humor in that. Can you go into that a little bit yeah. and explain what that is, what you're doing? So I'm buying unfinished needlepoint on eBay, and then I'm finishing it using only white yarns. And what I get in the end is this sort of abstract image that could never have existed any other way. It's a combination of the original designer of the kit, and sometimes before that, the painter who painted the original painting that the kit is made from, often my um, kits I find are... Um, reproductions of um, famous paintings. You know, that painter, the person who designed that kit, this stitcher, this anonymous person who stitched the piece, but stopped, and then me coming in and finishing it in white. And what I end up with in the end is this sort of also a record of what that original person accomplished before they stopped working on the project. While I was purchasing unfinished needlepoint, there was never any lack of unfinished needlepoint. There's so much unfinished needlepoint in the world. You know, it's a really, really small gesture to conceive of a society that would somehow prevent unfinished needlepoint from existing, that we would sort of mop up all of the guilt around an unfinished project, but only in this one area. I mean, as an artist, I too have had unfinished projects, art that you know I started and it never got done, and you know those things still haunt me today. And so I, I think you know I think we talked earlier about like what's the difference between making art and and making a needlepoint piece, just like you know as an average civilian, I guess. And what I would say is uh, there's a lot more in common than there is different in some ways, and one of them is this sort of um, the way that I feel about engaging in a new work, what happens in the middle of that process, the idea that I might lose steam on this and the worry around that, and then hopefully, you know, getting to the end and what that feels like too, the sort of sense of accomplishment of getting something done. I want to ask how you would feel if someone came in and saved some of your old unfinished projects? I would feel awesome about it. In fact, there's a basement full of that stuff right now that I would love to give someone. I mean, I was just having this conversation with my husband earlier, which is like, why can't someone do this for me? <laughs> just take this stuff, finish it however they want. I don't care. It doesn't have to be the way I thought it was going to go. But that would be amazing. I mean, if we follow this thought about work and, and how we feel about our accomplishments, or things that didn't work out like we planned. It doesn't take long for us to go to a sort of existential place of like, at some point, we're done, and whatever work we got finished, that's it, it's, it's over. There's no answer to this question of, you know, when we're done, because we're, as humans, we're, our life's work, we're never done, but we're gonna end, and so, you know, I think that this is a sort of lighthearted way, or I certainly hope my work is a sort of lighthearted way to. Have you ever heard that. from any of the people whose kits you finished? Um, no, I mean I've heard from people when I bought an unfinished needlepoint work. Like I have this amazing, petty point. Petty point is like the really fine size stitching, really tiny stitches, of a um, it was a poodle, a beautifully rendered poodle, and when I bought it on eBay, the woman who I bought it from wrote me a note and said, I'm so glad that you bought this piece. At the time I was still at Cranbrook, so she saw the address was an art school and she was really excited because her father had started the work and he died before he could finish it. Yeah. And so, you know, there's this, I mean, she's really, and it's beautiful. It is amazing. 
So. Why did you choose such a slow medium? <laughs> well, I mean, um, yeah, why did I? This is a conversation that's been ongoing in my life and reached critical mass um, when I was in graduate school working on a very different but similarly labor-intensive body of work. And my husband, Chris, came to help me finish this project because I wasn't going to get it done. And at one point, he turned to me and said, why does everything you ha do have to be so freaking labor-intensive? <laughs> and um, usually I would just say, you know, that's the way I make work. But when your husband asks you to sort of examine <laughs> the sort of underlying foundation of your work, you kind of have to listen in a different way than maybe I was normally listening. So I did start to think about it more. And it is all tied up with my own ideas or biases or upbringing about the value of labor. That labor is redeeming, that it is uh, the, one of the best things we can do as human beings is to work hard, right? And so because I have that um, bias towards work, I think I naturally gravitated towards this really labor-intensive process. Were, were your parents workers all the time? <laughs> Did they? It's so funny that you ask that. So in my mother and in my father, I see how much they work. And I think about also their attitudes toward, toward work, and I realize that they are out of sync, right? So my mother is Italian-American. She's very, um, if you asked her, you know, how do you feel about work? She would say, oh, I don't want to work. I just want to relax. Meanwhile, that woman does not stop from the moment she gets up until, the, you know, she does have, a, you know, she works a nine-to-five job. But even if she wasn't, she would be doing housework. She would not stop. And then my father, who's, you know, sort of Protestant work ethic kind of person, I think would have a ton of anxiety around work and, like, was he working hard enough? And yet isn't necessarily, like, the hardest worker ever. <laughs> you know, sort of, like, would come home. You know, like, many men in his generation, he would do his job and then come home and watch some sports. And I noticed this in my grandmother, too, you know, who I think vetched. I mean, she was the original progenitor of this work because you know my grandmother is now 98 years old when she was a young wife she was making stitched objects she was making embroideries and clothes and she was making quilts and don't you know she has an attic full of half-finished projects and every time I would go visit her she would say don't you want to come upstairs and see this stuff don't you think that you could finish what you, why don't you take this home and I would think oh okay you know like I didn't want her I mean it seemed like in her 90s she's still feeling bad about this anything you know I wanted to take that stuff from her and then it would sit in my house because I certainly wasn't going to finish it so you know I sort of that was how I originally noticed this inheritance of guilt that comes with unfinished textile. That's amazing. Yes. I think that's the last word, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking with Mary Small this morning. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you. <laughs> Art Blog Radio is brought to you by theartblog.org. Thanks to our sponsors, including the Knight Foundation. Also, we want to thank Peter Crimmins, who makes us sound good. He's our editor. And thanks to Eric Biondo for his music. You can download these podcasts at theartblog.org slash radio.